Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. Today we have with us Michael Mankins. He is a partner in Bain & Company San Francisco office, and he has written the book with Eric Garten, Time, Talent, Energy, Overcome Organizational Drag, and Unleash Your Team's Productive Power. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. It's a well-written book, like uh, some of the other books that have come out of Bain. It's the first uh, Michael Mankin book that I've read, but it's based in research. It also has a nice uh, complement of of sort of research based in academia in a sense, but also really practitioner based stories, right? So, so Michael is a partner in a consulting firm. He does this the same way we do this stuff in organizations. So there's an element that I think is very, very important in writing about leadership and writing about organizational change and organizational productivity that um, has to come from an insider perspective, which Michael brings. Michael, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's good to, good to be here. So let's start with why these three, time, talent, energy. There's so many different elements of an organization. You chose these three. Well, I mean, because uh, so much was uh, written on uh, so what drives performance within companies, uh, treating the scarcest resource that a company has as being financial capital. Uh, and uh, we had done some research a number of years ago that basically indicated that we're in a cyclical period of superabundance of financial capital. Uh, and so it was hard to imagine that putting yourself out for the next 10, 15 years, that that's the sort of resources we'd be talking about having to manage carefully in order to be competitive versus the competition. So it begged the question, okay, if capital isn't scarce, uh, what is scarce? Uh, and uh, we uh, focused on uh, time, uh, an organization's uh, collective time, how it spends it and invests it, um, the talent, the resource the company has, as well as the level of discretionary energy that the workforce brings, all of which are inherently scarce. Uh, and so it was in the, in the mindset of uh, helping executives and uh, companies manage scarce resources, but just taking an angle that said it's really human capital that's the scarce resource, and in particular, the time, talent, and energy of an organization's workforce that's truly scarce and has to be managed carefully. So can I just ask a question? Because when you think about financial resources not being scarce and human resources being scarce, why don't companies just take those, un, those abundant financial resources and hire more people? Wouldn't that, in effect, address the, a big part of the time, talent, and energy issue? Yeah, I mean, there, there is... Uh... There's no question that the more money you have, you can basically throw it at talents. Uh, but actually, a team that works together productively and collaborates effectively can take actually decades to build. Um, so it's not it's not uh, a problem that amends itself to just throwing money at it. Um, you have to manage it with a specific end in mind. Uh, and uh, so all of the work around the war for talent that was popularized in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, has produced what we have today, which is sort of a stalemate uh, 
like our research would have indicated we initially thought, wow, it must be that the best performing companies have dramatically better talent, better people than uh, the, the rest of the, the world. It turns out not to be true. We actually found out that about one in seven employees uh, had most, uh, at almost every company is considered an A player. Uh, the remaining six sevenths are considered to be B, uh, C players. Uh, and so the war for talent that has been fought uh, for so hard, uh, so fought for so hard, has basically produced a stalemate. One of the things that you said in the book is even with that same percentage of talent, right? I think it, one in seven is probably 13 percent or fifteen yeah. percent, and and that even if there's you know around fifteen percent of of your players are a players, that companies that manage their time, talent, and energy effectively have a 40% increase in productivity is what your research says. Absolutely. So our research says that the best companies, that's the top quartile in our sample of 300 uh, global companies that we uh, included and uh, studied, uh, produce about as much by 1030 in the morning on uh, Thursday as their, the rest do all week. Uh, right. And these and their workers continue to work. They continue to innovate. They continue to serve customers. They continue to develop new products. They continue um, to do uh, things for the community and uh, that maximize uh, the value of the company to its owners. And so, so let's let's unpack that a little bit. If I can interrupt you, let's unpack that. So. So from a time perspective, you know, what, let's break it up into these three things. What are they doing differently from a time perspective that's, that's leading to that 40% yeah, increase? Yeah, so um, as the research that we've done uh, basically says the average company loses about a day a week to what we call organizational drag, uh, which are the processes, procedures, bureaucracies that essentially consume time but do not lead to productive output. Uh, we all know what the symptoms are. Um, it's uh, the meetings that you didn't need to attend, but you were invited to and felt you needed to anyway. Uh, it's the endless chain of emails that show up in your in inbox every day that you, you need to respond. Um, but all of that is a reflection of the complexity of the organization itself. So in managing time that is trying to liberate productive time, uh, companies basically do two things very well. Uh, they simplify their organization uh, so that they have the minimum number of people uh, involved that have to interact with each other to produce the decisions that are necessary to both develop and execute a company strategy. And they take more uh, specific uh, steps to overcome what I call a, a culture of collaboration, collaboration's sake. Um, so they basically provide information to their executive teams on how much the demands that they make, uh, what load that places on the organization, and that provides executives the ability to self-police. They, you know. Let me ask you a question about that because I, so I, I think everybody who's listening probably intuitively understands that, and 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 yeah. sees it in their own organizations. Um, this is what I thought of as I was reading that piece is on the one hand, you have what you just said, right, which is that there's organizational drag that we're in meetings and we're dealing with emails that we really don't necessarily want to deal with that's taking our time. It's collaboration for collaboration's sake. On the other hand, 
you hear about the importance of engaging people and bringing them into the process and creating ownership by involving them from the beginning. And you also hear people who say, I can't believe I've been left out of that meeting and I think I could be really helpful. And how do you balance these two elements, which says from an efficiency standpoint, we only need three people in that meeting, but from an ownership and engagement standpoint, from a standpoint of helping people feel like they are part of the bigger picture, we really need to have more people even yeah, when they um, complain about it. Well, first of all, I would, I would argue with the basic premise that says engagement comes from involvement. There's nothing that more saps your energy more than being involved in an activity where you know you don't meaningfully contribute to the outcome. Uh, and uh, the... So part of the companies that actually have the highest level of engagement and inspiration in their employees typically have the lowest level of organizational drag. And that's because they don't want to be involved uh, in things where they don't meaningfully um, have any accountability for the outcome. They don't want to be uh, invited uh, to meetings to kibitz on uh, actions that other people need to take. So, so that- And is that, Michael, is that the measure? Is the measure then... If I have accountability for an outcome, then I should be in that meeting or I should be involved in that email. But if I'm not accountable for the outcome, I'm better off left out? Or responsible for managing the process that produces that outcome. You can think of there's, a, there's a responsibility, accountability, authority. Um, if you don't have one of those, then uh, chances are you don't need to be uh, engaged in uh, that specific decision. And uh, if you're continually engaged in areas where you don't have responsibility, accountability or authority, that's what leads actually to a culture of a collaboration for collaboration's sake, where prestige is gauged by the number of meetings you're invited to, uh, et cetera. And I guess also if you're someone who's sitting here listening to this and saying, um, I don't have that problem but I, I worry about not being invited to meetings because I'm not involved in enough things or I'm not involved in meetings or I'm not involved on emails that I should be, maybe you have to look at yourself and say, am I taking accountability? Am I responsible? Do I have authority to move things forward? Am I, am I contributing organizationally in a way that supports our movement towards the larger purpose. And if not, maybe I need to figure out from my own role perspective what I need to do to shift that so that I could focus on a particular piece of what the organization is doing and make it effective. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I also believe, though, that it's not exactly fair to leave that up to the individual, right? So the individual can self-assess. They can say, I don't seem to be responsible uh, or have you know, accountability or authority to do very much that's an organizational issue, right? That either says you have the wrong role uh, or your role itself doesn't need to exist. Um, that uh, it isn't exactly fair to ask you to solve that problem on your own. You've basically got to, that is an organizational issue that requires an organizational solution. Um, but if that's the test, you should ask yourself, what do I meaningfully contribute uh, to this, or am I just desiring to go to the meeting for the sake of uh, attendance? And to your point, as the leader, we should be looking organizationally and saying, do I have effective work groups of people who are meaningfully moving things forward who are in the right meetings because they have authority, they have responsibility, they have accountability? Yeah, I totally agree. That's that's the ultimate test. And uh, let's talk ahead. about, sorry, let's talk about talent. T- tell me, tell me a little bit about sort of what you found in the area of talent. What, what, 
what was what? what yeah. So what we what we found is that so we've already talked a little bit about the mix of talent between the best and the rest is basically the same. Uh, what uh, is very very different is the way um, that talents deployed, um, the way that talents team, and the way that talents led. That those three elements drive big big differences in uh, productivity. And uh, I'll explain each of them really quickly. Um, deployment, we found that um, the typical company uh, pursues a model that we call sort of unintentional egalitarianism. Uh, that is, they spread their A talent evenly across all the roles in an organization. Um, the best companies actually pursue a model we call intentional non-egalitarianism, uh, which says for those roles that are most critical to delivering the company's strategy and executing it effectively, no matter where they are in the organization, by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean the most senior roles. Every single one of those is uh, filled with an A player. Uh, so they may have 95% of the talent in certain roles are A players, which leaves less uh, for the less important roles. So deployment matters a lot. So I've read some research that says if you bring a bunch of really smart, talented A players together in a room, they actually decrease productivity, that you need some level of mixture of A players and B players and C players because the A players are often jockeying for that leadership role or to be in front or to and, – and there's something about what you found I think where – you know, there's a quality of these A players that's important. And that quality is one where, you know, there's, first of all, there's enough interesting work that they could all shine. And also, I, I imagine their egos are in check. You know, it's A players with, with kind of managed egos. But tell me what you found there. Yeah. So um, I know it's a common, I, I would say it's a common misperception um, that all star teams basically can't work together because egos get in the way. Um, it's not to say that there aren't all star teams that you can point to that don't get anything done because egos get in the way. Um, but there are many mechanisms that one can pursue, both in terms of the selection of people, as you indicate, an A player has to have the ability to collaborate in particular with other A players, as well as formal mechanisms in the company that can overcome that. So uh, the biggest one's comp, uh, candidly. We use an example in the book um, that uh, talks about uh, the difference between Apple in the development of uh, OS X, where it took 600 engineers less than two, three years to develop, debug, and deploy OS X, which was a massive um, overhaul to company's operating system. And that's in stark contrast to the 10,000 plus engineers. It took more than five years to develop, debug, deploy, and ultimately re or retract Microsoft Vista. And one of the biggest differences that's cited there, um, and this is historical, this has been changed at Microsoft, but uh, was comp, basically the way teams were rewarded. Um, Microsoft Individual versus versus team. team right. So if, if you believe that you can't succeed unless the team succeeds, um, you tend to keep your egos in check. Uh, the example is the dream team, the basketball team of Barcelona Olympics. Why is it those that all star team delivered was because nobody's going to get a gold medal unless the team got a gold medal. And uh, Apple's uh, rewards were entirely tied to team based. Uh, performance where Microsoft historically has been used a stacked ranking system, which they've subsequently abolished, that essentially discourages A players from teaming with other A players. 
so this is a question that I had as I as I read through the book, and and it's often a question I have when I'm looking at best practices that are based on certain cultures. You know, you talk about Netflix and and the sort of open culture of of, of people being adults, or you've talked about Apple, and and I wonder your experience or your perspective on whether you could take these particular combinations of cultural elements that make a particular organization successful and draw out from them lessons that you can then apply to organizations. And, and, and the challenge, I mean, I'll give you an example of a company that I know that had a pretty um, uh, authoritarian culture, but they wanted to be more like Google, so they put pool tables in, in, in the, you know, and pool tables don't change a culture. It's just one element of that culture. So how much of this is, you know, can we really take lessons from Netflix and apply them to our, you know, if we, if we suddenly take, uh, you know, a company that isn't open like that and say, okay, now all of you can choose all your vacation time by yourself. Have we done enough or are we taking pool tables and putting them in an authoritarian living room? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, there is a lot of uh, let's put the foosball table in and have uh, espresso machines in the lobby and, and we'll call ourselves inclusive uh, and pray for engagement. But uh, there are things that I think you can draw, which is the basic question is, when um, are you substituting policy uh, essentially for um, sound judgment? And do you need to do that? Um, the Netflix example in the book, I think, is powerful because it illustrates we many folks take for granted that you have to have an expense policy, right? You, you have to have a vacation policy. Um, otherwise, what? Well, you know, what will happen as a result? They have none, right? They, their, their expense policy is, you know, behave in the best interest of Netflix. Um, and as a result, they don't have a lot of people auditing expense reports. They don't have a lot of meetings talking about expense policy. They don't have uh, a lot of meetings looking at outliers on expense policy. Um, and uh, so they have lower organizational drag, uh, candidly, as a result of that decision. Uh, I'm not saying that every company shouldn't have an expense policy, but I do think every company should ask the basic question, are we substituting policy uh, in replace for judgment? And is that are the returns on that worth the cost? Because there's a lot of cost to it and it adds up uh, over time to a huge loss in productivity. Let's talk energy. So you make this distinction. Maybe I, I almost would call it the early 2000s. The whole focus was on engagement versus satisfaction. You're raising the bar to inspiration. And, and this idea that, you know, inspired employees are far more productive than engaged employees. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And not, I'm not poo-pooing engagement, by the way. Uh, engagement is still a laudable objective. Uh, we did find that engaged employees are about 45% more productive than satisfied employees. Um, but the biggest difference between the best and the rest in our research came from inspiration, where the, the, an average, the best an inspired employee is about 125% as productive as satisfied ones. So you'd have to hire two and a half or two and a quarter um, satisfied employees to match the production of uh, one inspired one. Not surprisingly, then, uh, the uh, biggest difference in productivity between the best in our companies was actually the mix of inspired employees. The mix of engaged employees, I'll highlight for the audience, was exactly the same uh, between the best and the rest. And that's because Gallup and other organizations have done a great job of uh, getting folks uh, focused on the importance of engagement. 
but uh, that has that doesn't actually determine relative performance anymore. Uh, in order to be a great performer today, you have to have a higher mix of inspired employees. And uh, that's where a lot of our work on energy has been focused, because uh, how do you do that? You know, how do you and you talk about 33 attributes? Yeah. Of and 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 that's a lot. But one of the attributes, the one that rose to the surface, which I find very interesting, is what you call centeredness. Yeah. So it's it's very hard um, if you look at the primary driver, there's humility, um, vision, and uh, uh, selflessness are the two are the three that are um, uh, most uh, critical in driving performance across organizations. But you can't have any of those three without centeredness. So you have to be able to center yourself, uh, assess a problem, see it uh, sort of outside of your body in order to take action on it. That's what gives you the ability. That's what gives you vision. That's what gives you selflessness if that's what's required in that situation. That's where it requires. That's what gives you humility. It basically is the source of all other all of the uh, 32 other attributes. Uh, And the reason why we focused on that was because everybody thinks that you're either born inspirational or you're not. Uh, and I think the important thing that comes out of our research is that's not true. Actually, inspirational leadership can be taught and it can be learned. Uh, and uh, it's a focus on getting a few of those 33 attributes right uh, and being, uh, uh, we, you know, being an outlier on those, a few of them. And that, gives, that would enable you to inspire more of uh, others and engage others. Could you share an example of an uninspirational leader who you either saw develop, you know, a critical attribute that helped him or her really become inspirational? Yeah, I think uh, I want to give you the name, uh, but uh, there there is an executive I'm working with now who has uh, spikes basically on humility, uh, selflessness, uh, but, uh, you know, sort of wasn't able to bring that forward in the way he led. Uh, And uh, the difference for inspirational leaders isn't the fact that they don't have these attributes. It's that it's not driving the way they lead organizations. So they're not putting them out front. Um, So by becoming more centered, uh, being able to look at uh, situations and analyze them objectively, and then leveraging this individual's strengths, they became much more inspiring. Uh, and uh, that's objectively measured. And how did you uh, help them to become more centered? Well, I mean, there are exercises. I mean, uh, I, it, a lot of it seems uh, like uh, yoga 101, uh, but part of becoming centered is actually, you know, breathing. Uh, be, you know, there's a series of exercises you need to go through that are very yoga-like uh, that basically allow you to separate yourself from a situation uh, and become the witness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, and I'm for those in your audience don't know me, I'm a very hard nosed person. So the first few times we went through this, I thought this is hokum. This is, this is not, this is not going to work. Um, but the reality is that that's the core, uh, uh, and uh, what you need to do in order to get centered is, is just as much physical as it is mental. Uh, because you have to separate yourself from a situation before you can uh, objectively assess it and move forward. How has the research 
of this book and writing this book changed the way you lead. You're a partner at Bain. You lead teams and project teams. And how has that changed for you? For one, um, we had, had historically had a bias towards balanced teams. Uh, and that's because nobody wants to say that certain um, tasks are more important than other tasks. And uh, the, the research in this book made me question that and made, has made us as a firm question that. Uh, and uh, the, so a big push for us has been to essentially prioritize, understand what, what differentially requires an all-star team versus uh, can be successfully executed with an average uh, team. So let me ask you a, maybe an uncomfortable question. Do you then take, you know, take a certain project or a certain client, say, okay, we're working with Netflix, we need an all-star team, we're working with you know, ABC company, for them, we can maybe use like not so much an all-star team. Of course we do, yeah. And that way, I think everybody, I think everybody does or they don't make that choice, in which case um, they've misprioritized. The other thing I would say that the biggest change for us as a firm is that all of our managers and partners have now now gone through inspirational leadership training uh, because people are our only asset. Uh, and if we really believe that the biggest difference in productivity is uh, driven by the mix of in, uh, inspired employees competing against the likes of Google, Facebook, et cetera, we've had to put all of our partners and managers through inspirational leadership training. The book is Time, Talent, Energy, Overcome Organizational Drag, and Unleash Your Team's Productive Power. We've been talking with Michael Mankins, who's the author, along with Eric Garten. Michael, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Bregman Leadership Intensive, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you to Claire Marshall for producing this episode and to Brian Wood, who created our music. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.